The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and visual teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Ah, I hope you're glad you came. Yes, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, what's, what's he doing here? Because we want more of that. I know, I know. But you're stuck with me for uh, just a little bit. Uh, thanks, Ben. That was awesome. That was a great job. Great job. Great job. Uh, uh, good stuff. Uh, my name is Alan, and we are so glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, I want to ask you if, uh, if any of you feel a little bit weary today. I think that some people at this time of the year uh, get a little bit uh, weary here in, in Phoenix around these parts. Uh, maybe it's because the, uh, the, the climate is starting to shift. You know, the uh, smart people who only uh, spend winters here are on their way out. And it's shifting from, wow, I love living in Phoenix, to why would anyone want to live in Phoenix? It's, it's making that movement. Maybe it's because the school year is, is getting towards, you know, the downhill, the last parts of it. And, and you kind of, there's a few things that you, you've been struggling with all, you know, all year or whatever, this teacher, this situation. And, and now, oh, we're almost there, so just kind of endure it. And it, it can be a little wearisome maybe. Or maybe it's just because Christmas is so far away, and that's frustrating, you know. But, but, uh, but if you feel uh, weary, um, uh, I want to address a part of that today. Do you feel energized or do you feel de-energized um, in life here as you uh, sit in this room here today? Uh, what we're going to talk about today is how we respond to the de-energizing people in our lives. The people who are uh, sometimes referred to as EGRs, extra grace required uh, people <laughs> in our lives. Perhaps there are people who uh, bore us. Maybe there are people who annoy us, people who are just kind of on a different wavelength. Maybe there are people who have hurt us and there's some pain involved there. It could be uh, those people in, in your lives. You could be one of those people in someone else's life. I know it's unlikely, but, but uh, I just want to address this uh, weariness piece in terms of how do we respond to de-energizing people? This year, as it says up on the screens, we're talking about something new. We're looking at the whole story of God and looking at the multiple times that God invites his people to think about, to participate in, to be something new. And what we're doing in these weeks before Easter is we're looking at the part of the story that is found in the Gospels. We're we call it the Messiah. And we're looking at the story of Jesus in preparation for Easter and looking at the multiple ways that Jesus invites us into something new. Sometimes when we are faced with de-energizing people, with EGRs in our life, sometimes we don't respond well. Sometimes we don't respond as, as Jesus perhaps would like us to respond. We can be judgmental or arrogant or think that we are better than that other person. What we're going to do today is look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew, a story of Jesus where he models a new response to people like that in your life, people like that in our lives. As we head into that, would you bow your heads with me as we say a word of prayer here? 
Father, we are thankful to be here in this place, thankful to once again be able to read about you and engage you and be in your presence here in this room. Father, I pray that you would energize us, that we would be able to plug ourselves into to your power and your presence, God. It's, it's through the music we can be energized and through thinking about you differently and being challenged and being encouraged here in this place. God, would you come and, and energize us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story I want to look at today is the story of an encounter Jesus has with a centurion. And it's found, uh, the same story is repeated in uh, two different places in the Gospels, once in the book of Matthew and once in the book of Luke. I want to look at Matthew's version today. So if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn there to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to look at this story of, the, uh, of, of an encounter with the centurion. What I want to do, first of all, is read through the story. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. If you have it in front of you, feel free to follow along. If you don't have it in front of you, just listen and get the overall picture of the story. Then we'll back up a little bit and revisit it. Okay, Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, let me just pause there real briefly. Capernaum is a city that is north of Jerusalem, uh, just west of the Sea of Galilee. And it was in that northern area that Jesus grew up. That's where Mary was from. And so this is where Jesus was a boy. He grew up in that area. He made friends. This is where he uh, identified his disciples around the Sea of Galilee. That's where his ministry started, was up in that northern part. So that's where we are up in Capernaum. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jump down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. I know many of you have heard that story before. You're familiar with that story. What is the overall point of this story? Well, we all know what the overall point is. It's the faith of the centurion. How do we know that? Because it says it right there in the little title in my Bible, the little subtitle there. The faith of the centurion. That's what it's called. That's obviously what it's about. Let's move on to verse 14. Wait a minute. What if there's something more going on here? What if that title wasn't originally in the Bible when it was written, which, of course, it wasn't. Uh, what, what if there's something happening here that our Western eyes and ears cannot see and cannot hear? What if there's, if there's an encounter happening here that would have been so radically different to a Jewish person 2,000 years ago? Jesus, of course, was Jewish, and the disciples were Jewish, and it says Jesus turned around to the people who had gathered. They would have been Jewish, all the friends and all that, the gathering up in Galilee and all that area. They would have been Jewish people. They would have had a very different response 
to this story because they understood who the centurion was in a way that we don't. We just read centurion. We don't know much about what that is. We don't know who that is. We just keep on going. Let me step back and unpack for you just a little bit what it would have meant for a centurion to have this interaction with a group of Jewish people 2,000 years ago. This part of the world was uh, the promised land. As we look at the Old Testament story, this is the place that God had promised, had given the people of God to, to uh, uh, habitate, to live and to, to grow in numbers. And they, they were there for many, many, many years. And then in the second half of the Old Testament, as we've been looking at for the past few weeks, there's this central event called the exile where God says, if you don't change your ways, if you don't turn back to God, I'm going to kick you out of your area. I'm going to kick you out of Judea. I'm going to kick you out of this place. And it actually happens because the people don't turn their hearts to God. And that's a significant part of the Old Testament story. So the people of God, the Jewish people, are, are, are not living in their area. And it is occupied by a number of different nations. Ultimately, the Jewish people, uh, many Jewish people come back to this part of the world. But it becomes uh, occupied by the Roman Empire uh, after a number of different occupations, it's the Roman Empire, and the Jewish people are there, but they're not in charge. They're not in leadership. They are there in their promised land, in their home area, and uh, the Romans are in charge. Sixty years prior to Jesus, so in the year 60 BC, approximately, a general, a Roman general named Pompey, rides his horse into the sacred temple in through the gates and into the sacred temple. And it's, it's, it's reported that he goes in and he slaughters some of the Jewish leaders and some of the Jewish priests and rabbis. They're in the temple, just inside the temple because he can do whatever he wants because he's a Roman general. And he takes his horse into the area of the Holy of Holies and he moves the curtain and steps inside the Holy of Holies, this place that for thousands of years is only for the high priest to go into one time a year. It is a, the most sacred place to the Jewish people. Pompey wants to go in there, whip open the curtains, and see this Jewish God, only to find that there's nothing in there. Ah, he's disappointed, so he turns around and, and desecrates the temple and walks away from that. 20 years later, 40 years before Jesus enters into the scene. Roman appoints a new king over this area, Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, he's referred to as Herod the Great uh, uh, largely because of his, his architectural uh, development, that he built cities and amazing buildings that are still in existence around there and, and uh, just a tremendous amount of things that were built during his time. The Jewish people did not think he was so great He was a a madman. He killed two of his own wives because he was threatened by them that they were trying to take over some power from him. He killed three of his own sons for the same reason. Herod the Great also would slaughter Jewish priests and uh, and rabbis. Uh, Herod the Great uh, eventually... uh, uh, he was the one, uh, when Jesus was born, who heard a rumor that there would be a baby born around in Bethlehem. So Herod the Great is the one who, went, who sent henchmen into that part of the world to kill babies 
because one of those boys might grow up and be a threat to his throne, even though he was so old that by the time that little baby grew up, he would no longer even be there. He was just insanely terrified of someone taking the throne from him. He ends up dying soon after that, and one of his sons does become the ruler in that area, and it is his son who, uh, who, is, who uh, cuts off the head of John the Baptist a few years uh, later. Soon after that, Pontius Pilate becomes, becomes the Roman-appointed leader of this area. And Pontius Pilate is the one who introduces the crucifixion to that part of the world, that it was used elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But Pontius Pilate said, hey, hey this will work over here. We want to use this as a deterrent and, and a fear um, uh, issue for all of the people here in our area. So Pontius Pilate brings that, and it's reported that at times he would send soldiers into groups of Jewish people and just beat them senseless to make it very clear who was in power. And we have a centurion who approaches Jesus. This is a Roman soldier, but it's not just any Roman soldier. It's a centurion, which means the, the root of that word is a hundred, and so he would have had uh, leadership over uh, about a hundred soldiers. He was a leader in the Roman army over multiple uh, people. And they had a terrible reputation that they would even beat their own soldiers to make sure they stood in line. The centurions, they, they, they represented violence and fear and oppression. So, so that, that's, that's what he represented. That's what he walked around with. A Roman centurion standing before Jesus. So let's read this story again. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Imagine this Roman army commander in full garb, standing before Jesus, He's uh, probably a leader, a Roman leader in that area, been known by a number of people, has done uh, 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 unspeakable things to Jewish people around there, him and his soldiers, and it's connected to decades of unspeakable things that have been done to the Jewish people in that area. And he stands there in front of Jesus, who's surrounded by a bunch of Jewish people, and he says, I need some help. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to... You're asking me for help? It says here that, that, his, that his, it's his servant who needs help. In Luke's version, it says that it was a highly valued, a greatly valued servant. It's very possible that this servant was a Jewish slave purchased from an auction block some time ago. And here he's standing before Jesus saying, hey, I need some help with one of my slaves. And he says that he's, he's suffering greatly. He's suffering greatly. Here, a centurion who's rep, who represents suffering and fear and violence, standing before Jesus, who, who, seeking help about a man who is very possibly suffering at the hands of the centurion, because of the centurion. And he stands before Jesus. How 
might you respond in a situation like that? Just imagine the gravity, the intensity of that moment for Jesus. How are you supposed to respond to that? Have you ever had a situation where somebody comes up and they asked you for help and it was the last person that you think should be asking you for help? Maybe it's somebody who has hurt you or hurt somebody you care about. Maybe it's somebody and there's a, there's a, a, a difficult past there. Like I said, the, the past between the, the Jewish people and the, and the Roman Empire goes deep. And maybe there's a deep history, a deep past in, for someone uh, in your life who has come up to you and asked for help. Someone who perhaps has betrayed you and now stands before you and wants your help. Are you kidding me? Have you forgotten what happened? Have you forgotten what happened five years ago? Have you forgotten what happened 20 years ago? You're asking me for money when you're the reason that I don't have money in the first place? How would you respond? I know, I know how I naturally would respond. I know how most of us would respond in a situation like that. And yet Jesus gives us a radical new response in this situation. A dramatic, radical response. And what he does is he, is he, put act, he puts actions to his words. Matthew chapter 8, this story of the centurion is found right after a section of scripture that has the most famous speech in the history of humankind. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is a recording of a message of Jesus that has had more impact on the world than any other sermon, any other message in the history of the world. And in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, offers a radical challenge to his followers. He says, love your enemies. He says, of course you're going to be kind to those who are kind to you. Of course you're going to be good to those who can do something good for you. Yeah, sure, but what's so special about that? What's the big deal about that? What's revolutionary about that? What's going to change the world about that? I mean, everybody does that. Jesus says, I want you to do something radically different. I want you to do something countercultural. I want you to do something that's way more difficult. I want you to do something that will change the world. I want you to love your enemies. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapter 8, boom, is where, where we land on this, this story of the, the centurion. Right after all these words that Jesus says, he is faced with the reality of what he, ha- of what he was saying. The, the tension there in that moment of Jesus standing before the centurion, of, of the, the, the Roman Empire and all that, that was represented and then the Jewish culture and all that was represented there, all the tension there and the tension between what Jesus just said and what he was about to do, that, that, that's where faith uh, becomes action. That's where uh, talking about this stuff becomes something that changes lives when it goes from just talking about it to, to actually doing something about it. See, th- this moment here, this is the easy part. 
gathering here in this place, this is the easy part. I know it's, it's you got to get up. You didn't even, you couldn't even make it to the nine o'clock service. So, so uh, you, you got to sleep in a little bit, but, but I know you got to rally the kids and you got to you fix your hair. Your hair looks great. And, and you, you know, this is the easy part though, to come in here and we just, we just hear, we just, and then I stand here and I say, here's what a centurion is. And here's what we're supposed to think about what we're supposed to do. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, we'll listen to some songs. This is the easy part. The tough part for you, the tough part for me, is taking any of this stuff, taking anything from the Sermon on the Mount, taking any of this stuff and have it actually impact how you treat people, how we treat people. Here's, here's, here's the amazing thing. In Matthew chapter 8, coming right out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus loves the centurion. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, loves the centurion, the Roman soldier. He puts his faith, he puts his words absolutely into action. And he does it by two things. Two things that we see in this, in this little story here. That, that, that first of all, Jesus offers the centurion help. So after the centurion approaches him in verses 5 and 6, then in verse 7, Jesus says, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Jesus offers to help. His first words, his first response is, what can I do to help? You want me to come heal him? What do you want to do? What's, what's the situation here? What can I do to help? See, that's not the way most of us respond with de-energizing people. When we're faced with people who have hurt us, people who annoy us, people with, who bore us, whatever the situation might be, we don't typically respond that way. We don't typically respond in ways that help. Oftentimes, we respond in ways that hurt. And it comes out of our brokenness. It's kind of a natural uh, uh, response in terms of, uh, it's, it's a kind of a knee-jerk response sometimes in terms of the people. Because of that history, because of that past, because of our hurt, that we respond. Hurt people hurt people. And so that's what so often happens to us when we, are, when we encounter a situation like that. And so we might, in a situation like that, we might say, hey, you made your bed, now you lie in it. I don't really understand that phrase. I mean, I, I, I like taking a nap. I mean, I, I don't fully understand the gravity of that phrase. But we all, we all kind of understand the, the general meaning, the idea of you made your bed, then you lie in it. That, that what we do is we kind of want to say something like that, whether it's a blatant response like that or a subtle response like that. Sometimes we don't respond in helpful ways. We respond in hurtful ways. Just last night, my son Martin uh, played hockey in the Chandler House League Bantam Championship, and his team won, and it was very exciting. It was awesome. It was great. Very proud of him. And uh, uh, his team was coached by Craig Deming, who is a part of our church, and I don't know if he's in here today, but Craig did a great job, and so way to go, Craig and his family. It's uh, so much fun. So much fun. Now, during the game, there was a father of one of the boys on the other team who was about two rows down from me, and throughout the game, he became somewhat of a centurion in my life. 
Because what, what he did during the game is he, he started yelling at the refs because his team was down and the refs weren't making the right call and the refs were making bad calls. Yelling at our players, yelling at my son or at least, you know, players on the same team as my son. And he was, he was doing this hand gesture. He was doing this. He was doing this hand gesture in the stands. Which is the international sign for my head is this big. And you don't deserve to be on the same planet as me and my head. That's what that means. That's, you've, ever, you've seen that before, right? That's what it means. I mean, you can look it up. Look it up in your own time. That's what that means. And so he was doing that and working all that. And, uh, and I have an opportunity. I can either be uh, helpful in that moment or I can be not helpful there in that moment. And so I'm sitting there. And then uh, at one point I said, settle down. Yeah, I heard someone go, ooh, and uh, that, that's what my wife said. Because uh, there in that moment, I, I, uh, I, uh, I don't know if he heard it, but my wife certainly heard it, and she looked up at me like this. She did this, which is the international sign for don't say another word, or you'll be sleeping in the Volkswagen bus tonight. That's, that's what that means. That's what that sign means. And you can look that one up too. That's what that international sign, that's what, that's what that uh, hand gesture means. Now, now I'm, not a, I'm not a tough guy. I mean, I know you look at me and you probably assume that I am. And I, I just, just set that aside for him. I'm not a tough, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know. But in a moment like that, I gotta poke. I don't know about you. I mean, I got in a moment like that, settle down. I just want to see what would happen, you know? <laughs> what would happen if I just poke him a little bit? You know, that, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the thing that's happening in there. And guy, that's, a, that's what guys do. Guys in that moment, they, they have to do that. And pardon me for being sexist, but I, I just don't think women typically in moments like that have the same urges, have the same kind of desires. My wife certainly, you know, she was leaning in another direction. But for me, I just wanted to poke. I wanted to find out what would happen with this, with this growing centurion in my life. I didn't want to help him at all. I didn't have compassion for him. I just wanted to poke and see what would happen. And so, Sometimes, you know, in our situations like that, we just have, we just have a tendency to poke. And ladies, you're, you're not totally free of this. You have your own version of this, all right? So don't think, yeah, you men. I mean, you have your own version of this. What we tend to do with some of these centurions in our lives is we, we want to find some way to either poke or hurt instead of helping. Jesus models something radically different. Jesus doesn't poke. He had so much opportunity there in that moment to teach that centurion a lesson, to make an example out of that centurion, to do something that maybe would have represented how all the Jewish people would have felt towards the centurion, yet he doesn't poke, he doesn't hurt. He says, what can I do to help? He offers help. You may be angry, you may be frustrated, you may have so many things. You you have to be smart about it, and you don't just let all your guard down and all that with with these situations. But you can, in that moment, radically think, what can I do to help? What can I do to help this situation instead of hurt it more? And the centurion responds and says, Jesus, you, you don't even need to come out 
You don't even, you just say the word and it'll be done because the centurion understands authority and power because that's what he represents. He just tells people what to do and it happens. Jesus, you can just say that and it'll happen. And then Jesus responds in the second half of verse 10. Jesus says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So Jesus does two things. He offers to help and he lifts the centurion up. He finds something good in the centurion and lifts him up. This is amazing. I mean, sure, you beat the soldiers that you're with, and sure, you're awful to the Jewish people, but your faith is really great. He finds something good in the centurion and lifts it up. We can always find something good in any centurion in our life. Yet we have a tendency to focus on, to spend so much time on the negative stuff. Even for the people that we love the most in life, we tend to lean towards negative stuff. For those of you who are parents, how many times with your kids, these little ones, no question about it, how much you love them, yet that things come out of your mouth that move towards pushing them down rather than lifting them up. And you say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why can't you be like like how you were when you were young or how the, this person down the street is or was or how a sibling is or was. Why can't you be like somebody else? Why do I have to tell you 50 times to do that? And we say some of these things that, that, are, that, that, are, that are natural and they, how I feel and they come out and yet they can wound. Some of those moments can be remembered by our kids for the rest of their lives. They can wound, and we, we didn't mean for that to happen, but it just sometimes we, we don't focus on lifting something up. We focus on pushing something down. When if you think about your, your siblings or coworkers or even your spouse or who, you know, other people, uh, that, that your peers that you're doing life with, you can focus on the fact that, for example, that she is, is messy and cluttered and late and uh, clumsy. Or you can lift up the fact that she is beautifully creative, that she sees things that you don't see, that she kind of paints word pictures and, and experiences the world in ways that you don't see. Or on the other side, you can focus on the fact that he is stiff and rigid and boring and cheap or you can lift up the fact that he has amazing attention to details and he has, has a precision with the way he thinks through and, and walks things out. We can always either see the thing that we can push somebody down on or the thing that we lift up. Jesus encounters a centurion and all the history that is there and he identifies something good in the centurion, the faith of the centurion is remarkable, Jesus says. Here's something good. I know you all hate him, but here's something good in this man standing before us. Let's identify something good and elevate that. You see, followers of Christ are confident. Followers of Christ have a sense of identity that says, I can lift you up without losing my own strength. I don't need to knock you down in order to feel better about myself. 
that followers of Jesus are great at lifting other people up. And it comes from this confident yet humble way of doing life. Followers of Jesus, like Jesus, lift people up. They lift people up. Jesus does two things. He offers help and he lifts up something good in the centurion. He offers a new response to the centurion. Now, the centurion in your life, it could be, could be somebody at work. It could be your boss. It could be a coworker. It could be an employee. It could be your parents. It could be your spouse. It could be a sibling. It could be your kids. It could be a former employee, a former spouse, a former friend. And, and, and that person is, is a centurion because there's some hurt or there's some uh, extra grace required that's a part of that journey. And so it's difficult and, and, and um, it's very difficult. It's very hard. I know in those situations, it's very hard. Here's the fortunate great news. There's a guy who's a writer of, a uh, prolific writer of our New Testament named Paul. And he was an early follower of Jesus. And he writes that when we follow Jesus, Christ is in us. Christ is in us. In fact, Paul says it um, eight different times in eight different ways. He talks about the fact that Christ is in us. So this difficulty we have to, to have a new response to people, it is taken care of by the fact that Christ is in us, giving us the ability to say, what can I do to help? Giving us the ability to say, to see something good in the centurions in our lives. To do those things that naturally we don't do. To do those things that are incredibly difficult. We're going to close out our time here today by participating in a, in a sacred experience that goes back 2,000 years. It's this thing we call communion. Where we take the bread and we take the cup which represent the body and the blood of Jesus, and we take it in. We don't take those elements and put them in our pocket. We don't keep them. We don't bronze them. We don't put them on a shelf. We don't put them on a wall. What we do with those elements that represent the body and the blood of Christ is we internalize them. We take this in, which connects with Paul saying eight times that Christ is in us. It is, a, it is a symbol of us taking Christ in us, taking Christ with us as we go home, as we walk out this week, that we can have the ability to have our new response to the centurions in our lives. Here's what's going to happen. The band is going to come up and, um, and uh, lead us through another uh, song while the ushers are distributing the elements. We practice an open communion here, which means if you're visiting from somewhere else and you are a follower of Christ, we invite you to participate in communion with us. I ask you during the song if you would just hold the, the, the bread and the, and the cup, hold it until the end of the song, and then we will take the elements uh, uh, together. So let us worship and prepare hearts, and I invite you to, to just think through the centurions in your life and how the presence of Christ in you can give you a radically new response to them.